There was no evidence that Governor, that Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not? Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around in other people's elections? Well, no, 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 no. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Rackets Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sadie. On this podcast, we discuss a lot of different topics related to organized crime, such as drug cartels, mafia families, white-collar crime, political corruption, etc. But today's topic will be solely focused on the El Chapo trial. And I think it'll be an enlightening episode for really everyone, whether you're pretty new to this topic or even if you've done a lot of research. Personally, I had kind of mixed emotions when it came to this trial. For one thing, I was happy to see, you know, the person who's basically the most notorious criminal in the world being held accountable and locked in prison. Um, He's a person who's responsible for thousands of deaths. And that's even really self-admitted. This wasn't something that was actually brought into evidence during the trial. The reason being we didn't really actually hear um, testimony from uh, Mexican law enforcement authorities. This was just cooperating witnesses and U.S. authorities. But after um, El Chapo was captured this last time, Mexican authorities, they said they accused him of being responsible for the death of 13,000 people. And in kind of a, a moment of loose honesty, he said, oh, no, no, couldn't have been more than 2,000 people. And again, I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing the story. I mean, even if that was accurate, I mean, it's just, just a small indicator of just all of the different human carnage that he's responsible for. But I also just, I hope that Americans don't have sort of a false sense of security now that the world's top narco trafficker has been convicted and most likely he'll be sentenced to life. And I, and I do think some people will think that, that it's really sort of a win in the war on drugs. But what you really have to understand is, and again, although I am happy to see him locked behind bars, having him in prison unfortunately actually really is kind of like a net negative for society and what i mean is by not having this one sort of stabilizing force within sort of the the narco underworld it created a power vacuum and there's just been a tremendous amount of violence for control of this different black of this black market and we've seen you know record levels of violence it was you know, last year and then the, and then the year before. Um, it just continues to increase. A lot of it has to do with, you know, factions within his organization vying for power and then other rival organizations sort of seeing that weakness and fighting for, for control of different territory. So all in all, there, there really is no progress, you know, in the war on drugs. El Chapo, I mean, he's been locked away for a couple of years basically cut off um, from all outside communication, yet there doesn't seem to have been any sort of real disruption um, as far as the the supply of drugs into the United States and anywhere else in the world. 
And obviously there doesn't seem to have been any sort of reduction in the demand for drugs. Uh, but overall, when you, when you look at this this trial, you do have to essentially give kudos to the, the prosecution and all of these investigators that did put in a tremendous amount of effort and really had an effective strategy. There was literally thousands of pages of documentation and hours upon hours of credible witness testimony and a trial that was around three months long. So again, when you look at that, it is an impressive um, output, but at the end of the day, it really is just basically a tremendous waste of resources. Really one of the more symbolic ones um, has to do with the fact that they had to shut down the Brooklyn Bridge in order to have the proper security detail to bring El Chapo from prison to the courthouse because uh, there was a valid concern that he might have some of his people try to help him escape, as, as it's happened multiple times back in Mexico. They also had to have really extensive security precautions as far as the jury. And speaking of the jury, for a little bit there, I was, I was kind of concerned because they were deliberating for quite a while. Uh, in my mind, that was really just an open and shut case. And for a bit there, I, I was concerned that we were going to have an outcome, sort of like the, some of the John Gotti trials, how, you know, how he developed this Teflon Don nickname. It wasn't a result of the prosecution not having strong case or just really good defense attorneys at the end of the day he, he bribed a member of the jury and again that was that was one of my concerns and I kind of saw some parallels with his trial for instance you know after one of one of the times when he was acquitted you know you'd see this these crowds of morons who were just cheering him on and so happy to see him to see him you know avoid the charges you know somebody who does study you know organized crime, I'm not one of these people who likes to celebrate gangster culture. That tends to be kind of a byproduct with some people. That's the last thing I want to see. I, I kind of get it. I, I understand why people react that way. We've seen how Hollywood and pop culture kind of depicts these types of topics. But that's definitely not, not my take on the story. By that, I'm, I'm kind of referring to, for one, El Chapo's wife You know, was always present there. And there was just sort of like a... It's kind of like a media spectacle, and she'd be taking pictures with you know, people standing by and just sort of you know, giving her this sort of fawning celebrity treatment. There was also one of the actors from the show Narcos, the, specifically the, the actor who portrayed El Chapo in the, in the latest season of Narcos. Now, he was not one of these people who's trying to, again, glamorize gangster culture. By the end of the day, even El Chapo, he saw him, kind of smiled, waved to him. Um, there was, uh, again, a certain sense of uh, spectacle. But let's talk about the the defense. Uh, if you had to defend El Chapo in court, I mean, you'd really have no no grounds. It's basically sort of like a Hail Mary defense. One of them was a, was a theory that El Chapo wasn't the real boss of the cartel. And they pointed to a guy, um, Ismael El Mayo Zambada Garcia. Basically, we'll just refer to him as El Mayo. And there may be some, some truth to that, actually. There, there are a lot of people who've investigated this for many years who always kind of felt that really El Chapo was kind of really the number two guy behind El Mayo. And if you haven't heard of El Mayo, it's for good reason. Um, he, he's done a good job of staying in the shadows. He did one interview, as far as I know, back in a, quite a while ago with a, you know, a Mexican news publication and he didn't admit to any sort of guilt just said that he was a farmer and a businessman 
Worst case, he's number two in the, in the cartel. It kind of reminds me of, um, I mean, there. in other words, there could be precedent if that were the case where you have this sort of very, very visible person who you presume to be the leader of the organization. Meanwhile, the actual criminal leader of the organization is somebody who's is not quite as visible. And, and I point to the example of Fat Tony Salerno. He was actually on the cover of Fortune magazine a number of years ago. And he was basically like the number two guy in a cartel, but he was very visible. He's always sporting a cigar. But it was actually Vincent the Chin Gigante, who was the head of the organization. And he, he kind of set up this really brilliant strategy where he had convinced people that he, that he was clinically insane. And he would walk around in public in bathrobes to mumble to himself but eventually the authorities did catch on to it it actually uh, Vincent the Cheney actually was acquitted once as a result of that defense strategy but investigators they did go far and get get taps and eventually pr- find him on tape admitting that this all was just a ruse but anyway so back to El Chapo um, another one of the theories of the defense was that he was set up by El Mayo and Again, there may actually be some truth to that, but also, again, it's not, that's not an actual legal defense that you're just the number two person in a criminal organization instead of number one. Um, and I'm going to get into that a little bit later um, in regards to testimony from the son of El Mayo, uh, Vincentio. Uh, but really one of the main theories of the defense was sort of pointing to the credibility of the witnesses, and by that I'm referring to many of them were people who were convicted and they were cooperating witnesses to try to get time reduced or some sort of benefit in their favor for for testifying against El Chapo. And often there there's a lot of truth to that. People will make up all kinds of lies in order to get time off of their sentences. But in this particular case, there was a ton of actual physical evidence. It wasn't based solely upon just the testimony of a snitch. And I also need to um, address this issue of snitching. You know, th- there's definitely sort of this, this gangster code and a sort of pride taken in not snitching. But there's also a lot of BS to that. I've kind of just seen example after example where it's really these the low-level gangsters who sort of abide by this sort of honor code. And in many cases, it's really the top levels of criminal organizations who have been the most notorious snitches. Um, you can look at Whitey Bulger, for example. Um, but l- let's focus on El Chapo. And l- l- let me give you a little bit of background here. So El Chapo had a really fast rise, and that's because he had some direct connections to the person who really was the, the top drug trafficker in Mexico for many years. He was actually nicknamed the Godfather, and that's uh, Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo. He was the leader of the Guadalajara cartel, and this cartel you know, rose into prominence because of its government's connections, That mainly being um, a group called the DFS. It's since been disbanded. It was basically the Mexican version of the CIA, and the DFS was quite closely tied to the CIA, and there's all kinds of links between them and the actual Iran-Contra affair. So, but long story short, uh, the Guadalajara cartel actually disbanded and it had to do uh, mainly because 
They were responsible for the death of a DA agent back in 1986, uh, Kiki Camarena. And afterwards, uh, basically the cartel split, and there was sort of like an orderly split that was arranged by, by the Godfather there. And it had to do with really essentially giving, marking out territory for different cartel leaders. In particular, uh, along the, the border with, Mexico, uh, with the U.S., one of those being um, Tijuana, which borders San Diego. So obviously that's a very valuable drug corridor that went to the Felix Arellano brothers, the territory of Sonora, which basically borders Arizona. So it really wasn't quite as valuable as far as um, drug trafficking is concerned because there aren't major U.S. highways connected there. And a guy called Amado Carrillo Fuentes, who was known as the Lord of the Skies, he essentially controlled Juarez, which connects to, again, a major U.S. highway. So El Chapo, he was really sort of this innovator as far as drug trafficking. He actually um, set up these tunnels that we, we, we've heard so much about over the years. And the first one was actually built back in 1987. We actually heard testimony from somebody um, closely tied to that, uh, a guy named Miguel Angel Martinez, he was basically what they would call like a lieutenant in the Sinaloa cartel, kind of like the right-hand man of, of El Chapo for many years. And this was just a really very valuable idea of El Chapo's. They, they smuggled just tons and tons of cocaine until it was actually discovered by chance back in 1990. So they kind of forced him to kind of transition and fight for some of those those different drug corridors, in particular Tijuana. But actually, I kind of want to back up for a second. And it just kind of is another one of these points that, you know, we've got this whole government shutdown or the threat of the government shutdown going um, specifically so that we can have a border wall and, and with this belief that it will actually stop the or at least slow down the flow of drugs into this country. But obviously, tunnels will do, you know, that will have no effect on the tunnels because I mentioned this one, but since then, there's been about another 180 of these types of tunnels discovered by, by law enforcement authorities. And there's no reason to believe that that will stop. And again, in reference to the, uh, the border wall, they're talking about those, you know, it's supposed to stop the flow of drugs. The border wall will do nothing to stop the flow of drugs that come through in these major drug corridors and, and those cities that, that connect to major U.S. highways. And yes, uh, if you put up a border wall, you know, somebody wants to carry in a backpack drugs across the border, yep, you're going to stop that or you're going you're gonna to reduce some of that. But the vast, the absolute vast majority of drugs that come in through this country, that they're not, they're not brought in by foot, you know, by physically crossing the border. They come in the, the back of an 18-wheeler truck disguised within, you know, legal goods. And that was actually something also that Miguel Angel Martinez uh, testified about. But actually, hold on, let me, let me get back to that thought in a second. I just kind of want to get back to this, this basic point of how the, the no snitching thing is total BS. Long story short, El Chapo back in 93, he was arrested in connection with the murder of Cardinal Juan Jesus Posada Ocampo. Now, he was actually framed... Now, and you don't have to take my word for it. That's actually the word of the lawyer for the Lord of the Skies. And what it was, so you have a, a rival drug lord snitching on another rival drug lord in order to eliminate competition. 
Um, so El Chapo, he flees the country because he's basically been, been set up. And when he was actually the target of that shooting, but he was actually, um, but he was ended up being the scapegoat. Nonetheless, so he flees the country. He goes to Guatemala. He bribes different government officials there for safe haven. But eventually he's captured. He's brought back. Um, and my point being that once he's brought back, it's very well documented that he just... He just absolutely spilled the beans. He, you know, once he was captured and within custody of uh, different Mexican officials, he, I mean, there was basically no secret that he didn't keep under wraps. You know, he, he told about every sort of connection with drugs he had, every corrupt government official that he had bribed. So long story short, El Chapo has been a snitch for close to 30 years. And, and he rose to the top of the drug game by all of these different connections with the government. So again, he, he, he went to prison back in 93 and he was there for nearly a decade, but again, running his operation while behind bars. And he actually broke out um, of prison back in 2001. That also had a lot to do with the help of one of the, the prison officials there, a guy nicknamed Alicionado, um, who ended up becoming a, a very high level member of the organization who was also Coincidentally, one of the cooperating witnesses in this trial. But shortly thereafter, after that breakout in 2001, just to give you an indicator of this this um, this level of government protection, there's sort of like this mafia summit just, just a few months afterwards, and all these different narco leaders, they show up and they have their, you know, they're basically their hitmen, their, their bodyguards with them, and El Chapo doesn't show up with 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 you know hitmen or or bodyguards he actually showed up with federal police officers they were acting as his protection when he went to that meeting but anyway so let, let, let's just get back to the present and, and the trial so really one of the most credible witnesses was that guy who i mentioned miguel angel martinez he was actually the godfather or i'm sorry el chapo was the godfather to his child if I'm remembering right, that was not something that Miguel actually wanted. That was sort of something that El Chapo forced upon him, although I could be remembering wrong. Uh, so basically, essentially sort of the right-hand man for El Chapo, lived in the U.S. for a while, actually learned how to, how to uh, train as a pilot there. Pretty smart guy, had a lot of, basically was tasked with sort of a lot of sort of white-collar aspects of the job. In fact, El Chapo didn't want him carrying a weapon. He wanted him essentially to be very clean and have really no criminal background. He was basically tasked with, you know, depositing millions of dollars every month in different banks. And again, he had to bribe government officials, bankers in order to make this happen. But one of the things that he talked about, and it goes back to what I was talking about before, where, again, the border wall is going to do nothing as far as stopping the flow of drug trafficking. And, and what it was, was they came up with this idea. They were going to disguise how they were going to transport the drugs. And what they did was they would use these cans of a very sort of popular brand of jalapenos back in Mexico. And this brand had already had a FDA approval for importation from the U.S. So the idea was they would just buy the company and then just sort of start to smuggle them in. But the company refused to actually sell. Uh, nonetheless, what they did was they just actually came up with um, a really good model for, for counterfeiting the labels and then just smuggling in and 
that way. You know, and in the end, um, the reason why, at the end of the day, why he's testifying is because he was sent to prison. And I'm not sure whether it's accurate or not, or whether he had already agreed to, to, you know, be a government witness or whether he was just serving his time. But nonetheless, while he was in custody, El Chapo's people put out multiple attempts on his life. Um, in fact, there's a story of when he was in prison that during one of the attempts that El Chapo actually had, I believe it was like a mariachi band or what they call these, these narco corridors where they sing these sort of narco ballads and they were performing this song during the attack from outside the walls of the prison. So that, again, there was just, you know, just a lot of really sensational aspects to this trial some of the more, you know, kind of gory details um, came from a guy who was one of the I'm sorry, security guards for El Chapo, a guy named um, Isaiah Valdez Rios. He was a former uh, Mexican military member. And again, you'll see you'll see a lot of that within the narco culture. It's former military or former police officers, and sometimes current military and current police officers working either on behalf or directly with the cartel. So yeah, this is a guy, former Mexican military, who's one of the security people for El Chapo, and he testified, you know, gave all kinds of gory details about witnessing um, El Chapo torture and murder people. In one case, they were, they were buried alive. Another one of the, you know, kind of sensational details that got a lot of attention in the medium was um, some of these text messages um, between El Chapo and his wife. One of them really stood out to me was the fact that he wanted to give an AK-47 to his six-month-old daughter. And another thing that it just kind of really gave me chills was the fact that he, he nicknamed his daughter Kiki, which, as I told you before, um, was also the nickname of uh, the, the DEA agent who was you know, tortured and killed, brutally tortured and killed back in, back in 86. And that's what led to the dismantling of the Guadalajara cartel. But anyway, so... The prosecution got that information as a result of El Chapo. He hired this tech guy. And for good reason, he was very uh, very paranoid. Um, and he wanted to sort of spy on everyone from his wife to his inner circle. So this tech guy was hired to, to install spyware on their phones and all types of electronic devices. Eventually, the, the FBI intercepted that guy and then forced him to start to become you know, a government witness. But basically, one of the things you could tell was just El Chapo, he really was a micromanager. That's something that really came across um, in a book called um, The Hunt for El Chapo. It was written by one of the DEA guys who led the investigation. But there was this one particular example where El Chapo was essentially verbally disciplining the top hitman or, or top security guy of his organization, a guy nicknamed Ivan Cholo. And... It had to do with Ivan Cholo threatening to kill different police officers. And Cholo uh, basically you know, replied back to El Chapo. He said, he taught us to be a wolf, acting like a wolf. I'm remembering, and that's how I like to do it. But basically, you know, El Chapo was trying to be sort of the, you know, trying to take the, the softer route and avoiding avoiding any sort of casualty of police officers because not that he's some humanitarian by any means, just that it's just not a good business practice. You know, when you kill authorities like that, it obviously there's some blowback involved. And to give you just another idea of that, he's not a humanitarian and that he's not always a businessman. 
um, there was testimony um, from the brother of El Mayo. That's Jesus, El Reyes, and Bada Garcia. <clears throat> and he talked about a, a particular incident in which it was basically sort of the catalyst war between the Juarez cartel and the Sinaloa cartel. And your natural assumption that it, that it would be that it was strictly about territory because Juarez is a very key component in, in trafficking drugs from Mexico to the U.S. And obviously that was part of the motivation, but according to this testimony, it was actually sparked because El Chapo ordered the death of Rodolfo Carrillo Fuentes. That's the son of, of the guy Lord of the Skies, who I mentioned before, and he was the brother of Vicente, who was essentially the, the heir to the throne in um, within that organization. What Rodolfo had done is he actually just refused to shake the hand of El Chapo during one of these sort of meetings or summits, and that was enough for him to order the death of Rodolfo and his wife, and that basically just sparked a whole cartel war. But El Rey, he, he talked about another incident where he actually saved El Chapo from being captured. And it was just as simple as giving out a, basically a quarter million dollar bribe to the, the proper army official. Because they had a whole capture mission in place where they probably would have got him. But by giving that bribe, that, that stopped the whole thing and nothing happened. Um, and again... A lot of times when you have a cooperating witness like that, there's sort of a question of credibility or motivation. Uh, but he's been in prison for a long time. And I think that he really demonstrated a lot of credibility in this trial. For one, he's a very well-educated guy. Um, by him, I'm referring to El Rey, again, the brother of El Mayo. Because he was essentially sort of an accountant for the cartel, among many other roles. But he's actually trained as an accountant, well-educated and El Rey basically broke down some of the sort of uh, the structure of the organization. And it's something that's pretty darn well documented, but this was sort of a, just another good indicator. There's a reason why the Sinaloa cartel was also really known as the Federation. And the reason is it wasn't really sort of a strict hierarchy type of organ, a vertical organization. It was more of a horizontal organization in which several different mini cartels sort of clan together to become the major cartel. And one of the things that he mentioned was when it came down to business and the actual dollars and cents that El Mayo and El, and El Chapo, when it came to making major wholesale purchases, they would do it together and they split the profits 50-50. But El Rey, he was, he was basically um, one of the top guys as far as Mexico City, um, in charge of all the different bribes necessary, um, and that included uh, really the attorney general uh, for that state. And the, just the numbers that he was spitting out there were just, it's just mind-blowing. He was the, the leader of a, of a warehouse there um, in Mexico City that processed as much as 80 to 100 tons of cocaine a year. I and mean, again, you can't do that without all kinds of complicity with, you know, from government sources. There was also some really interesting testimony from the son of El Mayo. Um, he's known as Vincentillo. Now, he was definitely in place to take over the cartel once El Mayo and El Chapo retired. But about 10 years ago, he actually turned himself into the DEA. 
And this is, this is one of the probably the most controversial aspects of the trial because there's questions about his motivation and, and really the government's motivation. And by that I'm referring to, there was this story, as far as I remember, Business Insider was about the only U.S. news source that reported upon it. And this was not long after Vincent Tio went into uh, U.S. custody. And they were reporting upon a story that was very big in the Mexican media. And it had to do with a case down there in Mexico in which different DEA and DOJ officials acknowledged that they had received info from the Sinaloa cartel on a fairly regular basis over the course of many years. So there's an obvious conclusion from that that really our government and most likely the Mexican government was essentially choosing sides and letting there be one major cartel as sort of, I guess, really sort of a stabilization effort. But I kind of got to get back to this point of, again, Vincentillo, he turned himself in voluntarily, and that's also sort of part of the defense's argument. And they may be accurate that this was all sort of a setup by Elmayo because it is very convenient that Vincentillo, he has all of this information and can testify about El Chapo, yet, you know, he's this DA informant. And meanwhile, his father, who's now most likely the head of the organization, is nowhere to be found. There's, you know, a $5 million reward for him, yet he's nowhere to be seen and he can't provide information about his own father. So that it does kind of help that narrative that El Chapo was set up. Uh, but at the same time, it's actually known that when uh, Vincentillo made this decision, he had a meeting with El Chapo and El Mayo. And in fact, um, El Chapo actually was the one who had different sort of back channel communications to where he knew people who could then get him in touch with the DEA. Uh, but again, none of this information was allowed to be brought to trial. The judge just refused. But that part really is a shame. But I didn't really expect that to happen anyways. Again, I, I, I want to talk about this subject of you can't get to that level, you know, to a kingpin status without government complicity. And one of the witnesses, a person named Alex Cifuentes Villa, he's part of um, a major drug trafficking family in Colombia who was also one of the witnesses. And according to Alex, he said that El Chapo actually gave a $100 million bribe to the former president of Mexico, Enrique Peña Nieto. I don't think it's necessarily accurate um, in that case, because when you look at really the history, the Sinaloa cartel actually had their best years in the administrations prior to Nieto, uh, for when the PAN party was in, in office. And you can really look at the stats um, it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier, how even though the Sinaloa cartel was the largest cartel, they also really had the fewest arrests. And, and you know, there are a lot of different investigative journals who've made the claim and provided some evidence to sort of point to the idea that the Sinaloa cartel was firmly financing the, the leaders of the Pawn Party, again, from the prior administrations. This was some really interesting uh, testimony for a number of reasons. For one, this guy, Alex Cifuentes Villa, he's from this family, and it's a, like a literal crime family from Medellin that was, you know, one of the major sources of cocaine in the world. 
And one of the ways that they actually transported the cocaine was they built these planes that were made of carbon. And the reason is it actually blocks radar from detecting the airplane there. But he was a, a particularly interesting witness because he actually lived with El Chapo. And basically he was, for lack of a better term, human collateral. He was there. Basically, it kept it kept both sides in line. You know, the, the Medellin connection knew that if they shorted El Chapo, ripped him off, well, their own family member would, would, would be killed. And at the other end, it also kept El Chapo in line so that he didn't ever short them on any of the payments or anything like that. Uh, Cifuentes Villa, he lived with El Chapo, and he was basically like a right-hand man to El Chapo. And one of the more interesting parts was the fact that he was tasked with um, shopping this, this movie script or a TV script about El Chapo's life. So again, it's another one of these indicators of the just tremendous hubris on his part, whereas his partner, Almayo, has been very happy to sort of live in the shadow in the backgrounds and live fairly anonymously. Uh, there was a testimony from another major um, Colombian cocaine supplier, a guy named Juan Carlos Ramirez Abadia, his nickname La Chupeta. And he was former leader of the, the North Valley Cartel. That's essentially sort of the successor group of the Cali Cartel. And this one went into some really interesting specifics, and that's how El Chapo had the nickname El Rapido, the fast one. And before they started doing business, El Chapo's sales pitch to this Colombian drug lord was that you're going to need to actually pay me a higher premium. So basically there was like a market rate for Mexican traffickers uh, working on behalf of the Colombians. And the market rate was about 37%. But El Chapo said that he would charge a markup of 40% and that he was worth it because he could not only get it there so reliably, he could get it there faster than the other people. And it proved to be true that really actually was um, El Chapo's nickname for you know many different people in the drug world. And another sort of sensational detail with this trial was the fact that this guy, La Chupeta, he's got just, he's, you know, for lack of a better term, his face has just been totally deformed um, because what he did to change his appearance, he just had this total reconstructive surgery, kind of like, you know, face off basically as a way to try to avoid being incarcerated and you know, that, that may have been part of what worked um, for a while. He fled to Brazil and for a long time actually lived there on the lamb. But he was, uh, I think, captured about about 10 years or so ago. Uh, but again, this guy was another major source of cocaine to El Chapo. Literally tons, tons of cocaine. And during, the, during his testimony, he admitted that he was responsible for at least 150 murders. But yeah, to kind of get back to that facial reconstructive, aspect it was kind of a, a theme in the trial because there was another person as well a guy named Tirso Martinez Sanchez who also had had major reconstructive surgery this is a guy who, who was working on behalf of the, the Sinaloa cartel at one point he was actually um, transporting cocaine via train if I remember right it was to the New York area um, another interesting aspect was the way in which he laundered his money was you know by buying different soccer teams um, and again, the, the theory didn't come up, or I'm sorry, this theme came up again. Well, it didn't come up during the trial, but it's just another aspect. It's, um, again, the guy Amado Carrillo Fuentes, the Lord of the Skies. 
The official story is that he died back in the late 90s from trying to have major facial reconstructive surgery. Very few people in the know actually believe that story. Uh, for a number of reasons, the actual body there didn't actually match his description. Many people believe that, um, that that was all sort of a ruse and that the Lord of the Skies just kind of retired from the drug game. But I would say probably the most credible testimony it came from twin brothers, Pedro and Margarito Flores. They were long story, they, they were major suppliers of drugs to the Chicago area. According to them, they were responsible for roughly about 2,000 kilos of cocaine per month. Um, they're also major suppliers of heroin as well. But what really made them credible, apart from being you know American-born government witnesses, was the fact that they actually turned themselves in. More importantly, they actually recorded some of their conversations with El Chapo. One of them was an actual negotiation on tape where eventually they got him. They, they got El Chapo to knock down the price, I think, by like 5000 a kilo, something like that. They didn't turn themselves in for some sort of benevolent reason. Um, it was really just the fact that they were caught in the middle of a war between the Beltran Labor Cartel and the Sinaloa Cartel. And what the reason for that is, they, they actually started out with the Beltran Leva Cartel, but the Beltran Leva Cartel was essentially within this umbrella of the Federation. They were allies at one point, but it's you know, there's strong evidence to indicate that El Chapo, again, using his government resources, set up the leader of the Beltran Leva Cartel and had him arrested. Um, essentially viewed him as a threat to power and a threat to his 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 profits. So there's this long drawn out battle between the two cartels and these Flores brothers, these guys from Chicago who, by the way, you know, I mean, they were basically born into this game. Um, their, their father was a, not to their level, but a pretty big time drug dealer back in Chicago and just kind of forced them into the trade. But Basically, Flores brothers, they're, they're witnessing all this different betrayal, and they were forced to choose between the Beltran Leva cartel or the Sinaloa cartel, knowing that whichever side they chose to work on behalf of, the other side was going to try to have them killed. And one of the things that, I mean, they, they knew it very well. I think it was Pedro's testimony in which he, um, he talked about his first meeting with El Chapo and going out there to his private ranch and just on the drive there you know pretty close to the property i mean he saw literally you know human beings chained to trees out there you know it's kind of like something if if you watch the show the walking dead you know it's something akin to that so they you know they they witnessed just the savagery that it's possible and they knew that i mean eventually they would be killed so they did turn themselves in, and I think uh, they got 14 years, but they get some time shaved off because of their um, testimony. But they'll probably live the rest of their life in witness protection. But, you know, I mean, there, there were so many different witnesses, and, and I've tried to be concise with this, and I, there's just only so much I can do in a, in a fairly short period of time. I guess the last the last thing I that I'd really comment upon is his testimony from a guy, Damaso Lopez Nunez. I, I, I mentioned him earlier. He's in Seattle, basically a nickname for, he was a lawyer. Um, he was the guy who I told you about, who was the prison official who helped El Chapo leave prison back in 2001. And he became really sort of this entrusted 
uh, very close confidant and very close associate of El Chapo. And the rumor has it, and it seems to be backed up by facts, that Elise, Elise, oh geez, we'll just say Nunez was um, chosen by El Chapo to be really his successor if El Chapo were to, to bow out of the game or be arrested. And that created an obvious tension because his sons are also basic leaders of another faction within the organization. Their nickname is Los Chapitos. And I'm assuming that he sort of didn't want really nepotism within his organization. They were kind of, at least for many years, kind of considered just to not be um, not be as credible within the criminal underworld. In fact, um, one of them was actually kidnapped um, for a period of time and believed to be ransomed. And the culprits are believed to have been the Jalisco New Generation cartel. So it just didn't really sort of help the... I guess you could say the credibility of the organization. So, again, El Chapo um, entrusted this this guy Oli, uh, to be his heir to the throne, but his own children basically were going to war with him, and you know a lot of people were killed in that process. And ultimately, this guy actually did turn himself in, and he did testify against El Chapo. I, I guess really the main thing I can point out is that again, what I said at the beginning that. Overall, it's good to see El Chapo behind bars, but it really is a net negative to society because there's just been so much bloodshed. And there's absolutely no reason to believe that any of this will lead to any sort of improvement in the supply or demand for drugs. I'm going to have an article um, that will come out either before or after the publishing of this podcast. And it'd be a great reference if you want to, if you want to look at that. Please support the podcast in whatever way you feel comfortable. You can give a five-star rating or subscribe and share it with your friends. And if if you'd like, you can also go out there and support the podcast the best way possible, and that's to go out and grab a copy of my three-book series called Rackets. It's on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So until next time, thank you much. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You don't have a license. The price is $250,000 plus a monthly payment of 5% of the gross of all four hotels in the store. Corleone.